Philippians chapter four is our focus. I'd like to preach a sermon from the first three verses of Philippians chapter four. Here's what it says. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the gift of a local church. God, we're thankful for the hope that we have in Christ that we celebrate during this Advent season. And God, we are thankful for your word, your powerful, powerful word, God, that transforms our hearts and our lives, that shows us the way forward, that shows us the way to salvation, to eternal life. And God, I pray this morning that we would value the time together for worship, for prayer, and to look at scripture. God, open our hearts, open our minds to your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned Shrek, an early 2000s movie, so how about Gladiator uh, this morning? Gladiator came out in, in 2000, a couple of famous sign, or scenes from Gladiator. Are you not entertained, that, that famous scene? But then there's also the scene in the arena there where Russell Crowe says, whatever comes out of these gates, we have a better chance of survival if we stick together. If we stay together, we survive. I was gonna try for you know, a more dramatic Russell Crowe, but that wasn't necessary. <laughs> I just put it up in front of you. And every time we play a video from YouTube, we get kicked off YouTube or Facebook or something like that. So you just got the still shot this morning. Whatever comes out of these gates, we have a better chance of survival if we stay together. This morning, the scripture is about the power of unity among a group of people. That when we are isolated, when we're trying to live life on our own, when we are a part of a business or a family or a church that's disunified, that's pushed apart, we can never do what God has called us to do. But this morning, God's word says that if we will come together if we will trust him, if we will serve together, if we will live together, that he leads us on a mission that's far greater than what any of us could do on our own. Look here at how Paul describes this group of people that he's writing to. Verse one, how does Paul see the people that are around him? Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Can I ask you to think about something? How do you see the people who are around you in a church family? How do you think about the people who are around you? How did, people think of, how did Paul think about the people at, at Philippi? He said that they were his family. I often talk about how good it is to have a church family, that we see one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Many times in this passage, Paul will work to put himself on the same level as the people he's writing to, saying, you're my brothers and sisters, you're, you're a part of, of my family. As the church, we are connected to believers all around the globe, all around the world as part of a church family, but God also brings us to be a part of local church families, where you can look at someone and, and even in times that you can't remember their name, you always have the gift of saying brother or sister in the church. You know, like, you know, hey brother, like I, I've already messed up a couple of times this morning on names, but you know, you're just like, hey brother, hey sister, a filler if you can't remember their names. We are a part of a family. God brings us together as part 
of the family of God. What does Paul say about them? He says, my brothers whom I love. What does it mean to look at people around a church family and say, I truly love you, I care for you? What do we know about love? Love is patient and kind. <laughs> love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love doesn't insist on its own way. Love isn't irritable. That's, that's a hard one to hear. <laughs> love is not irritable or resentful. Love rejoices not when somebody does the wrong thing. Love rejoices when someone does the right thing. That love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's what it means to love people around you. And what does he say? He says, whom I love and I long for. This idea that you desire to be with the people of God. That gathering for worship, that being with people is not a burden, it's a gift. That we get to the point that we desire, we long to be with people. When Paul is writing to the Philippians here, remember he's in jail. And, and this is the idea of, he's in prison, this is the idea of absence makes the heart grow fonder, like you haven't been together for a while and you desire to be with the people of God. I hear this so often from our older church members who are homebound or who are not able to be here because of illness or things going on in, in their lives, how desperately they want to be with God's people, how much they miss coming to church and connecting with people when they're not able to do that. This I, idea that I desire and long to be with people. Now, for the introverts in the room, uh, of whom I'm the captain of the team, <laughs> uh, what, what do we do with this idea of I long to be with somebody, I desire to be with, even if, our capacity for being with people is not as high as, as others, there's still this idea of I desire to be with the people of God. That is a good gift to do that. That we do that through hospitality. We do that through spending time in groups. We do that through playing together. We do that through serving together. We do that through friends giving events that are happening around this time of year. We do that in so many different ways, but this idea of when I look at people in this room, I desire to know them more. I desire to connect with them, I desire to love them. And, and he says here, he says, these people, they are my joy and my crown. Paul says, my joy in life is not things, it's people. My joy is the people of God that he's allowed me to be connected to. And that that would be true in our lives. My joy is you all. My joy is being with you and working together with you for the purpose of the gospel, that we find joy in people that God has placed around us. And that they are our crown. This idea of crown is the idea of honor. Paul's not bragging about what he has accomplished. His honor, his bragging, comes from the people of God that he's connected to. Sometimes people will come up to me and they know that I'm the pastor at Emmaus, and they will say, Pastor Owen, you have a beautiful church. And I'll say, some of them are. Like, that's my comeback. <laughs> uh, so when they say, you have a beautiful church, they mean, I really like your building that's on Southwestern Avenue, you know, down there, south of 149th Street. That's what they mean by that. What do we mean by, I'm bragging about my church, I have a beautiful church? It's the people of God gathered together. It's the fact that if I'm gonna brag about anything, I find joy in who you are to me and what God has called us to do together. When we look around this room, we're family. We love one another, we desire to be with one another, and we find joy, we find bragging rights in what God is doing among the people that he has placed here. And so what does Paul tell this group of people to do? What does he say? 
He says, you people that I love, that I count as my joy, stand firm thus in the Lord. The command that he gives them is stand firm. Now this command is unique. This is a, a phrase that comes as well in 1 Peter chapter five. When you hear stand firm, it could sound like just stand there and don't do anything, but that completely misses the idea of this word, okay? This word in the New Testament is connected to two different ideas. It's connected to being a soldier and connected to being an athlete. So it's not just about stand there and do nothing. Stand firm means you're a soldier. You've been given a position. You've been given a job to do. Do your job. Don't back away from it. Do what God's called you to do. Stand firm in the calling God's given you. And the word is also connected with being an athlete, specifically a runner. You have a course to run. Run the race. Don't stop. Keep going. Stay on the course. This fall, my brother just younger than me, who coaches and teaches in a little school down in southwest Oklahoma, he was asked this fall to be the cross-country coach at, at his high school. Now, there's only one problem with that. My brother's never run cross-country in his life. <laughs> so uh, our dad, he ran cross-country in college, but I, I just, I'm 40 and I'm still trying to find the runner's high. Like, I haven't found it yet, okay? So those of you that are a part of the Emmaus Running Club, keep going. Keep posting your times and your pictures. We just enjoy it from a distance, all right, while, while we're walking places. But uh, you guys keep going. This idea of running, I asked my brother. I said, you've never coached cross country before. What are you gonna tell the kids? And he said, I'm just gonna tell them to run faster and stay on the track. I was like, oh, man. I know it's more complicated than that. So if any of you in here do cross country, I don't mean to like malign what you do with cross country, but literally just run faster and stay on the course, and, and that'll, get, that'll get the job done. Paul is telling the Philippians, stand firm. You have a race to run. You have a job to do. Keep doing the job. Now, how do you stand firm? How do you do this? Well, look at the end of chapter three in Philippians. If you just scroll up in your phone, or, or turn back a page. Look at the very end of chapter three. How do we stand firm? How do we do this? It says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so on the foundation of the end of chapter three, Paul tells them to stand firm. So stand firm in your heavenly citizenship. Your identity, your hope is not found in the things of this world, it's in the hope of heaven. Focus there, that's how you stand firm is remembering where your true citizenship, where your true identity is found. Heavenly citizenship, the idea of Christ's return. You have the hope of Christ returning. The reason we can keep going in the Christian life, the reason we don't back away, is because we know that Jesus will return one day to make all things right. And then he also says, God's at work to transform your life. What you see right now is not the end of the story. Keep going, keep doing your job, keep living out the life that God has called you to live. He's gonna transform your lowly body into something far greater than anything that you could ever imagine. You have a heavenly citizenship, you have a savior who is returning to make all things right, and God is the one who will transform your life. Keep running, keep doing your job, stand firm, amen, what could go wrong? Oh, except the whole New Testament is filled with warnings that say, standing firm is hard. <laughs> Continuing to run is hard. 
continuing to do your job is hard. Our call as believers, as the church, to stand firm, it's constantly threatened. It's threatened sometimes just by life circumstances. Let's be honest, in life, sometimes we just get discouraged. Like sometimes we just think, I don't know if I can keep going because I feel so discouraged by what's going on in my life, the life circumstances. Sometimes we begin to look around at the things of the world and those things look way better than following Jesus. And so we think, I don't know if I wanna keep doing this job. I don't know if I wanna stay on this, on this course that leads to Jesus because honestly, everything else looks a little more enticing, looks, looks a little better. Sometimes false teaching or, or people will begin to draw us away from the way of Jesus. Discouragement and disunity are two of the greatest battles we fight in the Christian life. We get discouraged, will we keep going, and we get disunified. Will the church keep going in what God has called us to do, or will we begin to go our own way, begin to break, break apart? What do we find here in the next verse? Chapter four, verse two. We find this idea of disunity breaking in here. What does Paul say? He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. What you have here is here's a church that brings Paul such great joy. Here's a church that's doing great things and yet there's a problem underneath the surface. There are two ladies here and let's be clear, we're gonna say a lot of great things about these ladies, okay? So we're not saying that, that ladies cause disunity in the church. I'm not nearly brave enough to say that, nor dumb enough, to, uh, I'm not saying that. We're just gonna say that in this situation, there's these two women here who, they're in a little bit of a, a tussle. Uh, they're, they're in a little bit of, of a battle here in the, in the church. Something is going on, we don't know exactly what. But I wanna make a couple of points here about these ladies, Euodia and Syntyche. We don't wanna make a big deal about their names, but I do think their names matter. The reason their names matter is because the first lady, Euodia, the beginning of her name is a little Greek prefix that means something's good. It's a positive word. And then Syntyche, her name begins with a few Greek letters that had this idea of working together with people, being, being in partnership with people. In other words, this verse, these ladies' names, they give off positive vibes. Uh, this last week, we spent a couple of days with my family in Branson over the, the Thanksgiving holiday. And you know in, in Branson or those vacation places you go to, you walk into one of the stores, the uh, gift stores, and they have everybody's name on the wall. And you go over there and you look for your name on the wall and it has you know, what the meaning of your name is. Or you can buy a keychain with your name for $75 if you'd like a keychain. Uh, everything costs $75 in Branson. but. Um, you can find this little keychain that has your name and the meaning of it. The idea here is these ladies' names, they give off positive vibes. Like, these are leaders in the church. Don't miss how positively Paul talks about these women, that they are working together with Paul in the ministry of the gospel. They are battling alongside him. These are women that Paul thinks so highly of. And you may hear people talk about the New Testament and how Paul speaks of women in the church, and sometimes it can be put in a very negative light, be careful about that mentality because so often in the New Testament, Paul is lifting up the role of women in the church and what, what they've been called to do and how they're working together. But there is a situation here where trouble is brewing. For some reason, these ladies can't get along. Uh, I was trying to think of like 
a funny example of why they couldn't get along, and every funny example I came up with just hit, hit a little too close to home. So we're not even going to make up a reason uh, for, for why, they couldn't, why they couldn't get along, but for some reason they couldn't. And when you have key leaders, hear me out on this, when you have key leaders, key workers in a church family who start to butt heads and there starts to be a rift and a divide, it can really hurt the morale of the church, the ministry of the church, the mission of the church, what the church has been called to do. And Paul knows if, if we don't address this, it's not just a small tiff between these two ladies, it's gonna affect the whole, the whole church family. Now, what causes disunity in the church? We don't know exactly what caused disunity for, for these ladies, but what causes disunity among a group of people? Well, we start to believe the lies of the enemy, that, that those lies come in and they start to cause trouble among people. So often, disunity happens when we end up supplying intent for another person that they never actually express that intent. Uh, we, we, we begin to assume things about people, and we all know what happens when we assume about people. And so you start to have these ideas develop, and, and these lies get mixed in, and no one's speaking the truth and love to each other, and, and trouble begins to brew. Sometimes disunity happens among a group of people because we're just hard-headed people. We get pride and sin and foolishness and the reality of being human, and it comes in and it starts to cause trouble in the group. Sometimes disunity happens in a church because we forget what we've been called to do. We lose sight of the mission, and we lose sight of the mission. That begins to cause trouble in the church. And so Paul is going to respond, and he's going to lead them down a path of, here's how you build unity. Which, at this point, you might be tempted to say, hey, Owen, just spill the beans. Like, uh, just, just explain to us, like, well, where's the disunity in, in Emmaus that, that you're alluding to here? There is not. I, I'm not preaching this sermon because I know of some underlying dispute or disunity in the church. In fact, I think we're in a really powerful, beautiful, healthy place as a church family. But sometimes, God puts passages in front of us to prepare us for things that are going down, coming down the road, and sometimes God puts a passage in front of us because if we'll learn the lessons now, we won't have to walk a painful road that, that, that's coming. So I wanna be crystal clear. This is not a passive-aggressive sermon, okay? There's no type of disunity that I'm trying to address. There's nothing going on that I know of. It's just a matter of God has put this passage in front of us, and we need to think, how do we build unity in the church? Here's the other thing I would tell you. Even if right now we're in a place where there's not that disunity in our church family, here's the reality of, of it is. You go to school, there's broken friendships and relationships and disunity at school, band members, sports teams, groups you're a part of, disunity happens, guess what? You go to work, disunity happens at work. We live in families, we, we're coming off Thanksgiving, some of you may have lived through a disunity sermon illustration for the last week around your family, like trying to navigate, how, do we, how can we not be more unified as a family or, or in our marriage? The things we're gonna talk about over the next few minutes, how to build unity, they matter for the church family, but you can use this in everything you do, in your business, in your family, at school, whatever God leads you to. So let me give you five points this morning straight from scripture, straight from what Paul presents to us here in God's word, five ways that we build unity in the church. The first is we can encourage unity 
but we can't force it. Look at the beginning there of verse 2. What does he say? He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. To be totally honest with you, I am not sure why the English Standard Version used entreat. I mean, that is not a word that we, we like treats. You know, our dog goes crazy when he, hear, crazy when he hears the word treat, but we don't use the word entreat. Um, it's the biblical word encourage. I have no idea why the translators didn't just say I encourage or, or I urge. It's that same word. It's this idea that you're coming along someone and you're trying to put an arm around the shoulder. Or you're trying to challenge them to go in the right direction. One of my favorite New Testament words that I talk about too much, but that's the word that, that's happening right here in Scripture. We know that if people are disunified, if there's an argument among people or a tip among people, you cannot force people to get alone. Uh, get, get along. Parents, you can't force your kids to get along. <laughs> grown, uh, parents with grown children, you can't force your kids to get along with the rest of the family, even when they're grown kids. You can't force people to do the right thing. Usually, you know how most of us are. If we're doing something that we know is not right and, and there's trouble brewing and somebody comes along and tries to force us to get along, it actually makes the situation worse. Like, don't you bristle a little bit if somebody forces you to do something? When we are forced to do something, rarely does it make a difference. But here, Paul is saying, I encourage, I urge. Uh, Romans chapter 12 verse 18 says, as much as it depends upon you, live at peace with all people. Did you know, some people in life just don't wanna get along. Like they refuse to get along. You can try everything possible to get along with some people and they just don't wanna make it happen. They are not going to allow unity to be a part of the relationship. So Paul says, I urge you, I encourage you, but I know I can't force you to do this. So number one, we can encourage unity, but we can't force it. Number two, we look to Jesus. How do you build unity? You look to Jesus. He says, I encourage Yodia and I encourage Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Our unity as the people of God will always come when we look to Jesus. Would you turn back a couple of pages in your Bible to Philippians chapter two, or just scroll up in your phone? We're gonna look at Philippians chapter two a little more in about two or three weeks. And the verses are on the screen behind me if you don't have a copy of the Bible in front of you, but it's easy to get to, you just turn back. When we think about looking to Jesus for unity in our relationships, look at Philippians chapter two starting in verse one. Paul says there, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind. This is Philippians 4 wording that's being used here in chapter two. Paul says, you would make me full of joy if you would just agree. Every parent's favorite verse, like kids, you would bring so much joy to my household if you would just agree, just have the same mind about what's going on here. This is the idea, just agree on these things, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Disunity in a family, disunity in a church has a hard time surviving when people are humble to one another. When people sacrifice of their own rights, sacrifice of their own life, give of their own life for the good of others, disunity thrives around pride and disunity crumbles around humility. When we are humble toward one another the way Christ was humble, the way he gave himself, sacrificed himself, it builds unity together because we realize I don't have to be God. I don't have to be in charge. There's one God and thank God I'm not him. And so I can be who God's called me to be. I can love and be humble toward and sacrifice for the good of those around me. I don't always have to assert my own rights and what I want to happen in a situation. When we look to Jesus, it builds unity among a group of people. Number three, if you go back over to ver- or chapter four, and you can look at verse three of chapter four, Paul says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, to help these women. This is the idea that when there is disunity happening among a group of people, you bring in help from fellow coworkers, from fellow people that are involved in the effort. The idea that if there's trouble happening, sometimes you just need a mediator. Sometimes you just need a calm voice. Sometimes you just need someone to step in and say, hey, let's, let's take a deep breath. Let's step back and, and see what's going on in, in the situation. This phrase in your Bible where it says, I ask you also true companion, That word for companion, some people think that's actually a person's name in the church at Philippi. It's a hard Greek word to say, it just doesn't come out well, it's it's syzygy. So some people think there's actually a person at Philippi named syzygy, but it's also a word that can mean companion. So it just may be the fact that there is someone else in the church who is faithful, who is loyal, who's part of the ministry, and Paul is saying, hey, if you could step in and help these ladies, I think we can solve this before it becomes a big deal. Friends, let me give you a a, a challenge here. Hear me out on this. Make this a challenge for your life. Be the kind of person that someone can call on to step into a tense situation and turn down the temperature, not turn up the temperature. Make it your focus in life, (laughs) your goal in life, that you could be the kind of faithful loyal person at your workplace, in your family, at the church, that if there's disunity brewing, if there's trouble brewing, they're like, oh, I know who to call. That's the kind of person that could step into the situation and they're gonna turn the temperature down. They're gonna point them back to Jesus. They're not gonna force something to happen. They're gonna encourage the people. Because some people get brought into a situation of disunity or, or, or troubles brewing and they turn up the temperature. Don't be that kind of person. Be faithful. Be loyal. Be someone that you can be called on to step in, turn down the temperature, and point people back to Jesus. Number four, it goes on here, and it talks about these women and and others 
who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. We are unified when we remember that we have a shared mission. That together, when we are on mission, it brings us together as the people of God. When we're sitting around and we forget what we've been called to do, we forget what the mission is, then we become disunified. So, this week, I thought, I need a way to explain this point, like this idea that if you sit still, you become disorganized, but when you start moving, when you start doing things together, you're brought together in unity. So I went to the great farm of church illustrations called Facebook. Um, uh, and I, I put out a little post on Facebook, and I thought this will flop. It won't go anywhere, but I'm just going to do it and see what comes of it. Asking people on Facebook if they had any illustrations for something that when you sit still, it gets disorganized, but when you move, it all comes together. And man, did people come through. <laughs> I got like uh, 58 comments or something like that on Facebook of ideas behind this. Some were a little strange, I have to admit. Uh, uh, they were things that, that weren't going to really work, but there were two, there were two that stood out to me that I thought, these are really good illustrations. The first was of a flock of geese. Now, I don't know if your neighborhood is like our neighborhood, but geese are the bane of my existence. I mean, talk about making a mess and being everywhere, and they're mean, uh, you know, and so like we just try to avoid the geese when we walk around, around the neighborhood. But the point that was made, I'm not using geese to describe church members. Bane of my existence, cause trouble, mean, stay away from them. Not, I should have thought through that illustration before I, before I use it. So let's use this with like gentleness uh, with these. These are very gentle geese. I love these geese. I desire to be with these geese. Uh, they don't cause a mess for my life at all. Um, so geese, when they're just on the ground, they're disorganized, kind of doing their own thing. But when the geese have a mission, when they have a place to go, they get in line and they go do it. They're, they're brought together. Second illustration, which all of a sudden is sounding a lot better in my head as I try the first one. The second illustration was that science experiment where you're teaching people about non-Newtonian fluids and the idea of making oobleck. Kids, how many of you made oobleck uh, in the room? Yeah, you take the cornstarch and the water. Go home this afternoon with your parents' permission and you can do this as a, as a sermon illustration. I thought it would be really cool if on stage I made oobleck and then I knew that would be a disaster. <laughs> like something would go wrong, and my dad is the custodian at the church I grew up in, I'm always concerned about anything I do that's gonna cause trouble for the custodians, and so my luck, I would make oobleck up here on the stage, and it would fall on the ground and make a huge mess. But the point is, when you mix the cornstarch and the water together, if it just sits there, it kind of becomes runny, and it, it does its own thing. But when you start to mess with it, you start to, to move it around, it comes together and it can be molded. Here's the point. When the people of God are on mission together, we are in a much better position to be unified. When churches begin to sit around and not be on mission, it's a lot easier to start chirping about little things that don't really make a big deal. It's a lot easier to start finding things that you don't like about the church. It's a lot easier to start finding problems that are going on. But when we're on mission, when we have something we're called to, it brings us together in a way that almost nothing else can. Let's be a church that is on mission in such a way that it builds up unity among the people of God.
Number five, let's wrap up with this at the very end. So we look, we can't force people, we encourage them to look to Jesus. We bring in people to help who can turn down the temperature. We have a shared mission. And then the very end of verse three says, all these people that are a part of this church, their names are in the book of life. We don't have time to do a full Bible search on this idea of the book of life, but, but it's, a, it's an eternal reality, the fact that our names are written in the book of life, that our eternal future is secure. One of the greatest ways to build unity among a group of people is to remind them that what we see right now is not the end of the story, that there is an eternal picture that's in front of us. When you have trouble in your workplace, when you have trouble in your family, a good question to ask is, will this be a big deal five years from now? Like when you're pulling your hair out about something and you're just going crazy and it feels like everything's falling apart, will this be a big deal five years from now? Like is this really worth dividing over and causing all this chaos over? How about the question, will this be a big deal five million years from now? Think about the things that cause trouble in a church. Think about the things that cause trouble in a family. Will they matter five million years from now or not? Because when we have an eternal perspective, it has a way of focusing us on what really matters. And so I wanna ask you a question as we wrap up. Where is your hope for eternity? The most important question we will ask today is not can we get along? The most important question I can ask you in response today is do you have a shared eternal hope? What is your hope for eternity? What is your hope for five million years from now? What is your hope for overcoming the sin and death of this world? The fact that every person on the planet has two problems that they can never deal with on their own. Every one of us can't overcome our sin and our death, but Jesus has dealt with both of those through the cross and the resurrection that we have hope beyond this life. When you have that shared hope, it humbles you. You don't have to prove things to people around you. You don't have to prove that you're better than anybody else. You don't have to use other people. You don't live for the things of this world. Our life is transformed by this idea of eternal hope. Do you have that hope? If you don't, I know it's the first Sunday after Thanksgiving. I know we're trying to get back into this process of moving into the holidays. I, I know all those things. The most important thing that you could do today is that you would trust in Jesus for salvation. You may be here with a friend or a family member and you just came because it was a church service and you wanted to be with them. You may have been a part of church for a long time and, and you really get frustrated at church because of all the disunity that happens in the church. I want to tell you, the most important question you can answer today is do I have eternal hope? And if you don't, that you would turn to Jesus. And if you have that eternal hope, are you on mission with the people of God? Do you have a church family where you look at people and say, I love them, I care for them, I wanna be with them, they are my joy because I see how God is at work in our church family, that we are brought together. And if you feel disconnected, or you feel isolated, that today would be the day you would say, I need to be back as part of the church. I need to reconnect with the mission of the people of God. I need to come to lunch next week. I need to take one of these holiday meal bags and, and go out with the church on the 18th and pass them out. I, I need to find some way to get reconnected to the mission of God. At the very end of the Gladiator movie, 
the movie begins with Russell Crowe walking through a wheat field and kind of touching the tops of, of, the, of the wheat stalks as he walks through there. And the end of the movie has the same scene where he walks through touching the tops of the wheat stalks. Friends, we have a source of unity that's far greater than any promise of Valhalla. We have a savior who has come to us at Christmas so that he would take on our sin, he would take on flesh to be with us, and the story of Easter is that through the cross and the resurrection, he overcame sin and death, and he is building a people for his glory and his mission, and we get a chance to be part of that. Let's pray together. Father, as we think about your word, we think about the work of Jesus in our lives, that's incredible that we have been saved. It's incredible that any of us would experience your grace and mercy. But to know that Jesus is not only saving us individually, but he is building a church, that he saves us in order to bring us to be a part of the people of God. And we know churches are made up of people and there's all kinds of trouble that can brew. There's also all kinds of things that can happen. We, we all have baggage and difficulty and things like that, but, but God, the church is such a great gift from you. And God, we want to be unified for the purpose of the mission you've set before us. God, help us to keep focused on what truly matters. God, I pray for students as they go back to school and they might, might be walking into clubs or teams or, or friendships that are broken. And God, if there are people in the room and, and their marriage or their family or their kids are in a bad spot, God, that this hope of unity through Jesus would, would keep them focused. God, you were able to make a way. We can put our trust in you. And so God, as we sing this final song, as we respond in prayer, as people respond to the work of the Holy Spirit, would you remind us of how you're at work in our lives and our church? And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.